Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. So let us pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of this day, the gift of life, the gift of community, and the ability to be here together once again to dive into Scripture and to allow you to speak to us. So we pray tonight, Lord, that you would remove any distractions or worries from our minds and hearts, allow us to be at ease, to rest in this space, and to rest in your word so that we can be attentive to how your spirit is moving and speaking to each one of us. Bless us each in the ways we most need it and the things that are causing us worry, doubt, fear, anxiety, the things that we have to do tomorrow. Whatever it may be, Lord, we, we lay this time at your feet and we entrust it to you. We ask that you guide us, that this would be directed by you, and that you would allow us to be attentive to the specific message you have in store for each one of us tonight. We pray all these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are in Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 52. Matthew 13, verses 44 to 52. This is the gospel for this upcoming Sunday, which is the 17th Sunday in Ordinary Time. And this gospel picks up exactly where we left off last week. So last week we had several kingdom parables. Jesus gives the parable of the weeds and the wheat. And then we have three very short kind of parables about uh, the kingdom of God, the mustard seed, the yeast, things like that. And now he's continuing on this trajectory after he explains the parable of the weeds, a few more parables before he finishes up what's called the parable discourse, his third section of teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. Okay, so we're in the middle teaching section, third of five teaching sections of Jesus in Matthew. Uh, all filled with parables. And so these are the final ones that he offers. At this point, um, he has excused the crowds. Uh, we see this in verse 36. And just the disciples are with him in his house. So all these other parables he's given to all the, cr the crowds, and now he has a few left just for his disciples. That's what we're going to hear tonight. So Matthew 13, 44 to 52, we're going to read it twice through. First time, just get a picture for what is being said. Jesus is in his house in Capernaum by the sea with the 12 apostles, his disciples, giving them a few more parables. Starting in verse 44, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field, which a person finds and hides again, and out of joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant searching for fine pearls. When he finds a pearl of great price, he goes and sells all that he has and buys it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net thrown into the sea, which collects fish of every kind. When it is full, they haul it ashore and sit down to put what is good into buckets. What is bad, they throw away. Thus it will be at the end of the age. 
the angels will go out and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. Do you understand all these things? They answered, yes. And he replied, then every scribe who has been instructed in the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household who brings from his storeroom both the new and the old. When Jesus finished these parables, he went away from there. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. I threw verse 53 in there, even though you won't hear that in the gospel. It just seemed kind of weird to leave it out. So uh, we're going to read that a second time. Now you get a picture for these short little emphatic parable statements that Jesus ends this discourse with. We're going to read this a second time. And now that you have a picture for what Jesus is teaching here, listen closely and see if there's any word or phrase that just strikes you. It doesn't have to have anything do with, to do with how we theologically interpret the passage, but maybe a word just strikes you. It speaks to something going on in your own life, reminds you of a memory, sparks a train of thought, whatever it is. Write those things down, underline them, reflect on them, and ask the simple question, why is this standing out? What is the Lord trying to say to me through this word or detail? So second and final time through Matthew 13, starting in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field, which a person finds and hides again, and out of joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant searching for fine pearls. When he finds a pearl of great price, he goes and sells all that he has and buys it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net thrown into the sea which collects fish of every kind. When it is full, they haul it ashore and sit down to put what is good into buckets. What is bad, they throw away. Thus it will be at the end of the age. The angels will go out and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. Do you understand all these things? They answered, yes. And Jesus replied, then every scribe who has been instructed in the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household who brings from his storeroom both the new and the old. When Jesus finished these parables, he went away from there. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take a few moments to look over this passage and the things that stood out to you. If you're watching this or listening to it, please uh, let us know what stood out to you. But for those of us who are here, uh, take a few moments to do that and then share at your tables what stood out to you and why. If you're at a smaller table, feel free to join another. And also share any questions that arose when you were reading this reading or listening, following along. And then after about 10 minutes, we'll bring it back to the larger group to answer those questions and for a larger discussion. So take the next 10 minutes or so. A lot in these passages, and I think these these uh, this collection of kind of final parables, at least kind of what I'd like to share, then we can open it up, is kind of two trajectories that 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 Matthew's taking us on here. One is kind of how all these things relate to each other, because this kind of seems like a random smattering of just a couple different statements about the kingdom of God, and then this final interaction. I think if you look at these first two parables about the pearl of great price and the treasure hidden in a field, it kind of points back to something I shared a few weeks ago 
uh, this quote from T.S. Eliot, where he says, uh, Christianity is a condition of complete simplicity, costing no less than everything. Okay? It's simple. Christianity, it'll cost you, and it'll just cost you everything. That's it. That's the simple cost of Christianity. And we see that played out here in people who discover something, shows that they're seeking, right? They discover something, they respond with such great joy that it leads them to this complete and total sacrificial action, and yet, it doesn't feel as though it's a sacrifice. Like, you don't have any description of like, oh, and then by the sweat of his brow, and he was really worried if this purchase was gonna be the right one. No, it's just like complete and total devotion, decision made, I'm gonna sell everything, and I'm gonna go just in, all into this one thing that I've discovered that is everything. It's the only thing worth anything. And so we have that first. We have that idea. It's, it's something that C.S. Lewis calls the principle of first and second things. You know, first things first. You can only have one priority. And so if you have the first thing in the right place, then you'll, pro you'll, you'll get that first thing. You'll have a right ordered relationship with that first thing. And then everything below it, you'll probably also get or prioritize. But if you or rearrange those things and you put the second or third thing first, you're probably not going to get either. Because you're not going to be prioritizing the thing that should be first, and then you're going to ruin or idolize or create some kind of weird dynamic with the second thing that's in the wrong place. And so that's what C.S. Lewis called the principle of first and second things. So we have to know what is the first thing. What is the first thing? And when we identify that, that's the kingdom of God. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. Then we have this last kind of parable line, that the net draws in everybody. And yet at the end, there'll be a separation between the good fish and the bad fish. Everyone is offered this gift of salvation. Everyone is offered this treasure in a field. Everyone is offered this pearl of great price. But how do we respond? And so the invitation is first, have you recognized the treasure that you've been given? And then secondly, have you responded? Because if you don't respond, there is going to be a moment beyond which there's a point of no return. You can't go back and just say, oh, no, I really didn't mean it. Or no, I'll live my life differently. It will be over. And then Jesus says, do you understand? And I love this, how they're like, yep. <laughs> like, really? You really think you understand? Like, you haven't been around that long. They're like, yep, totally. Got it, man. <laughs> but he says... Then every scribe who's been instructed in the kingdom of heaven, so all, anyone who receives this instruction is like someone, a master, who goes and brings out both the old and the new wine. Comparing that to the old revelation, the old covenant, the old testament, and this new thing that Jesus is offering. And what he's trying to show them is that these two things are both offering the same end goal. I'm not giving you something totally radical and totally new. Jesus himself says in Matthew 5, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. I didn't came, come to change one letter or one part of a letter of the law. None of that will pass away. Jesus came to fulfill. And so it's not out with the old and in with the new. This is a deepening of understanding of what has always been offered to us and how we've always been called to respond with total and complete surrender. And if we do that, then we will receive the kingdom of God. Then we'll be like the good fish who are sorted into the buckets, not the ones who are thrown into the place of, of wailing and grinding of teeth. That's an analogy for hell. 
That is what is offered to us. But within each of these, we also have a trajectory for our own life. Because within each of these, there's kind of like three distinct parts. There's a, a sense of discovery. Someone is seeking something, they discover. And then there's the response, which is joy. And then there's an action. Discovery, joy, action. And those three things, I think, can really inform you and I in our reflection on this, on this passage in the coming week. Am I in a posture each day of discovery? Am I actually looking for God? Am I looking for God? Or do I expect salvation to just kind of fall in my lap? You know what drives me crazy? A lot of things. But you know what drives me crazy this week? Is that I was, I was over in the church, and I don't know if you know, but we have all these pamphlets and tracts in the back of the church about different things that the church teaches. I'm the person who puts all those there, and I arrange them, and I throw out all the weird stuff that people leave in there that's not supposed to be in there. It's very fun. But I was replacing all of these things. And so I know which ones get used the most and which ones don't really get taken a lot. And the ones that get used the most are things like daily prayer, how to pray the rosary, how to go to confession. Great stuff. You know the one that gets taken the least that I never have to replace? The one that says salvation. And that is alarming to me. Because that is all that matters. And brothers and sisters... The church does not teach that confession will get you to heaven or that the rosary will get you to heaven. It doesn't. That's not how we're justified. Those things are necessary tools that can help us and give us grace on that way, but they're not the thing that saves us. And so we can easily fall into the habit of, I just show up and if I do Catholic things or things that look spiritual, I'll get there. But I don't need to worry about that whole salvation piece. Because I'm a good person, right? I haven't killed anyone today. I think the bar that Jesus sets is a little higher than not being a murderer. Like, I just, I think that, based on what I know from Scripture, it's about what is he offering us? Have we responded? And first of all, are we even seeking it out in the first place? Or do we just expect, kind of in this religious sense of entitlement? Yeah, I've been Catholic my whole life. I've been going to Mass. A lot of people don't go to Mass. Like, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven, obviously. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. Just because you go through the motions doesn't mean that you're guaranteed someplace. It's not about anything that you do. It's about what Jesus did on the cross and our response to it. So are we seeking so that we can have that discovery? And when we do discover, do we respond in joy? Because I think, brothers and sisters, a lot of time when we receive that gift of faith, a lot of our response comes out in the form of complaining. <laughs> or kind of a lackluster response, laziness, procrastination. Oh yeah, I really should pray more. I really should get back to that. You know, at the end of our life, that's going to seem really kind of funny that we phrase it that way. You know, I really should have like kind of got out of that path toward hell sooner. Oh, shucks. You know, like it'll really be put into perspective at the end of life. But right now, it just seems like, oh, I got all the time in the world. No. Do we respond with that great joy? It's not a sense of duty or obligation. It's a sense of joyful response. And then that compels us to act. And again, you see in this, there's no sense of like, oh, this is a huge sacrifice or a terrible inconvenience. We are seeking, and because of that, we make this discovery, we respond in joy, and we act. And the act, because of the joy, because we understand the gift that's been given to us that we've discovered, is this kind of, it's almost like an effortless act of complete self-gift. I will sell everything. I will give my whole life. Nothing else really matters in perspective of this. Blaise Pascal, the philosopher, uh, is, kind of reminds me of a quote. He says that the, the heart has reasons which reason does not know. Because this seems kind of like a foolish idea, right? 
to just kind of give up everything for something that, you know, there's no, you, there's no guarantee, like there's no evidence-based 100% guarantee that you're going to get a, uh, you're gonna receive any kind of fruit from your return. There's no 100% guarantee that like, sure, when you die, this is all real. It's, you know, we have evidence, but there is still that element of faith, right? No one's ever going to be able to give you 100% proof guarantee. Here it is, the proof that all of this is 1,000% real. Otherwise, it wouldn't require any faith. We have a lot of proof. We have a lot of evidence. But no one's going to be able to completely guarantee, without a shadow of a doubt, that this is exactly what's going to happen. And so it can seem to the world very foolish. You're willing to give up everything for that? You're willing to kind of live a life where you're not having fun and seeking the latest pleasure and doing all the experiential things that we can share on our Instagram pages? Because that's what life is, right? It's about how many followers you have on TikTok. Like, that's all that matters, really, right? The world looks at this idea of being faithful and sees it as ridiculous. Now, I'm not saying those things are bad, social media and all that stuff can be used for good. Great evangelization can be done on them. But in a lot of those forms of communication, it kind of pervades this idea or communicates this idea that this is what life is about and this is what your life is supposed to look like. Joseph Campbell said something to the effect of the greatest tragedy in life is not so much failure but climbing the ladder of success and finding out that it is up against the wrong wall. Going after the same thing that we think is going to make us happy and then getting so high up that ladder that we can finally see oh this is not where I wanted to be. This is not where I thought it was leading at all. That's the trajectory that these are taking us on. And each one is inspiring us to look at our own life and ask, am I seeking? Do I have that sense of discovery? Have I discovered the good news? And am I joyfully responding to it? And is that coming to fruition in some type of concrete action? It's not the other way around. The action, just going through the motions, is not going to give me joy. And then I'm going to discover some higher truth that I didn't know before. That's what we accidentally tend to believe. If I just go through the spiritual motions, it will make me happier and I'll just discover something. No, we have to have it in the proper order. Is our heart seeking the Lord? Have we responded to the good news? That compels us to rightly ordered action that's not about, I'm earning my way to heaven, I'm doing good things, so I'm going to get there. No, it's about, God loved me this much to do this for me. And I totally respond blowing him off most of the time, and yet he still loves me. And I want to rightly order myself in that relationship to love him as best as I can in return, because look at all he's done for me. And I can offer nothing back, but just respond. He doesn't need it. He doesn't need my response. He's fine. But I want to give it to him. That's what these parables compel us to do. That's what they offer us. Total devotion to the Lord. Last thing, and I'll open this up. I, I, I come back to this phrase often ever since I read it. But there's, uh, in, in Islam, uh, Muslims pray five times a day. It's one of the five pillars of Islam. It's called Salat. And I came across, I don't know if this is in the Quran or if it's just a saying from a particular imam, but it was, uh, you know, someone was asking someone, why do we pray five times a day in Islam? And the reason he gave was that it scrapes the rust of forgetfulness off of the soul. Isn't that beautiful? Scrapes the rust of forgetfulness off the soul. To be that devoted, to be like, God, I never want to forget what you've done for me. So I'm going to come to you day in and day out, and I'm going to devote my life to be ordered toward you multiple times throughout the day, every day, 24-7, 365. It doesn't mean I have to go to work crawling on my knees praying rosaries that I can't get anything done. 
but it means that this is the defining feature of my life and nothing else is ordered or prioritized above it. But when this is in its proper place, everything else falls into its proper place and becomes more abundant and more fruitful because it's all in service to my relationship with Jesus. So this, we can glean a lot of self-reflection. Does my life reflect that? What are the priorities in my life? I say this all the time. If someone were to look at my calendar and my checkbook, would they know that I worship the God of the universe first and foremost in my life? How we spend my time, how we spend my money. Is it rightly ordered? Am I seeking? Am I responding in joy? And is it leading me to some kind of action? Because Christian, Christianity is a condition of complete simplicity, costing no less than everything. Am I willing to pay that price? Am I waiting? Am I holding on to some earthly thing? Have I paid it already? And how do I keep my hands empty so that they're free to cling to the one who has saved me? Thoughts on this passage? Questions? Things that stood out to you? Gage? I think it's really beautiful that right after this, Mark has the, the death of John the Baptist. In, in in Mark? Yeah. Okay. Or, sorry, Matthew. In Matthew. Matthew. Oh, yeah, yeah. After he's rejected at Nazareth. Right yeah. He... Yeah. Right after this, Jesus faces rejection in his hometown, and then John the Baptist's cousin is killed. So Jesus here is kind of, I mean, this is how Matthew very brilliantly positions these teachings in such a way to show you Jesus is actually a walking example of what it means to live this out. And it doesn't look very glorious, and it doesn't look like you're going to get all this popularity and all this influence. It's a struggle. It's difficult. It involves carrying your cross and dealing with loss and dealing with grief and suffering. But that doesn't mean it's purposeless. It doesn't mean that God's not in it. Other things, questions, things that stood out to you? Matt? reflection on the, the, the 12 apostles like willing to take that to their death and they get nothing in return. 
The martyrs, the early martyrs of the church, and all the martyrs who've been killed throughout history, they get nothing in return. They exemplified this to a T, willing to give up everything, absolutely everything. To not be remembered, to not receive any glory. If you ever go to the Vatican, there is a uh, somewhat incorruptible saint there, a martyr from the third century who's unnamed, and his body's still you know, pretty incorrupt. You can see where his throat was slit. I've talked about this guy before, um, but he has no name. He's an unnamed Roman soldier who they knew was a Christian convert, and his body's been incorrupt, not preserved, but miraculously incorrupt, not decaying at the normal rate, just there at the Vatican. But he, nobody knows who he is, what his name was, what his life was about. Only that he was willing to give everything. That's it. At the end of his life, there's no eulogy, there's no resume, there's no, look at all this long list of achievements and legends associated with this person. We have no clue. No clue who it was. And the same thing is true of like the great cathedrals of Europe. You know, look at the great cathedrals of Europe. Have you ever seen a book of them? And you look under who the builder was. So many of them, the builder is unknown. Because so many of these cathedrals started in the lifetime of a builder who knew this building will not be completed within my lifetime. And another builder took over and another builder took over and they knew it was about something grander and greater than themselves. And so there was no kind of forced sense of recognition. And then just through the passing of time, nobody remembered who actually was responsible for making these incredible feats of architecture. And that's what the Christian life is about. There's a story of one architect uh, or no, one builder uh, of a cathedral and he's way up in the rafters of a church. And he's sitting on a beam and he's carving an ornate bird into a beam that's going to be covered by the roof. No one will ever see this bird. And so this person is like, what are you doing? Like, why are you spending all this effort? Nobody is ever going to see this. And he just said, because God sees. Because God sees. God is worth the effort. Jesus proved that he's willing to do this for us. Look at any crucifix as an example. He was willing to give up everything for you and for me. And so our response has to be the same. Are we willing to give up everything? Other questions, thoughts? Yes, Joe. Uh, I was curious about the analogy with heaven being like a treasure being buried in a field. Mm -hmm. Somebody finds it, and rather than proclaiming that to other people, they selfishly hide it mm -hmm. and buy that entire plot of land. Why would he say something like that, uh, basically like hiding heaven, so to speak? Hmm. Yeah, so I, I get the, so the question is, why hide the treasure? Why bury it again instead of tell everyone about this great thing that you found? Um, so this was both like an economic reality at the time and like it has a, a parable, like an allegory. So a lot of times people would bury treasures on the ground because there was no banking system or at least not a reliable uh, often banking system where you could keep your valuables safe. And so a lot of times people would bury things just for safety. But when it comes to the message of the kingdom of God, I, th I interpret this more as, the way we approach the kingdom of God needs to be honest. And if the man doesn't own the field, then it's not his yet. So he's willing to have the risk of burying it, risking losing it, so that he can acquire it in the right way to then, what do you do with a field? You plant it and you cultivate it, and then you share that harvest with your family and with others. So to me, it's more speaks of the honesty needed with which we approach the kingdom of God, the message of the good news so that we're doing it in the rightly ordered way and we're not just kind of grabbing it for ourselves. Like Paul even warns people, like, or he says to, about himself, we offer the gospel at no cost 
We charge nothing. There are other teachers out here who are charging an arm and a leg and asking you to put them up and all, I'm paraphrasing here, but this is the reality that was happening at the time, putting them up in all these lavish houses and entertaining and whining and dining them. We've never asked that of you. We've never asked that of you because this is not what it's about. It's not about monetary gain. We've offered this free of charge to the point where Paul would often work in his known trade as a tent maker so he could gain a living doing honest work so that he could then go proclaim the gospel. This is part of the reason when Jesus sends people out two by two, he says, whatever house receives you, stay there. Do not go into another house. And that's because once it was discovered that these people were apostles and they had these gifts and authority that Jesus gave them to drive out demons and to heal, people would inevitably come and be like, oh, you're staying in that little dinky house? Stay in my house and I'll wine and dine you. And there's that temptation to then kind of enjoy the luxury that comes with that kind of popularity. And he says, no, you're not to do that. Don't take a staff. Don't take a second tunic. Don't take anything with you. Rely on the hospitality of others, even if they have no idea what you have to offer. And don't upgrade. No upgrades. Just take what you are given and receive it with joy. That's it. It's not about what we get from it. And so that's what I, how I would interpret it, is that it needs to be honest. Yeah, great question. Chrissy. The angels will go out and separate the wicked from the righteous. Mm -hmm. In terms of like our judgment day, I always thought that we'll be met face to face with Christ and like, he will be our judge. But to me, this sort of alludes that like maybe the angels will do some of the work, right? Mm. Like separating the good from the wicked. So I want to see yeah. like, will we all get our time, our moment with Christ himself? Yes, we will. Um, this kind of points to there's a passage in John 18. So the question is about the angels being involved in this kind of final moment of judgment. And are, is, isn't Jesus the judge? Uh, and so in, in John 18, verse 36, uh, Jesus answers this questioning from Pontius Pilate, where he says, uh, my kingdom does not belong to this world. If my kingdom belonged to this world, my attendants would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not here. And so it's clear that Jesus has these angels at his beck and call to come and do his bidding. And his bidding, by virtue of what the catechism says that Jesus, by being crucified, earned the right to judge us. He was, or maybe not earned is the word it uses, but was given the right to judge humanity, the ability to judge us, based on his offering of himself on the cross. And so he has that ability. He can extend that to the angels to help him in that regard. So there have been some kind of traditional beliefs. This is not church teaching, but some kind of traditional beliefs or private revelations from some particular saints or writers about what happens when we die. Uh, theologically, what the church teaches is that at the moment of your death, you face Jesus for what's called your particular judgment. However, some people posit that the person who leads you, or the being, rather, that leads you to Jesus to be judged is either your guardian angel or St. Michael the Archangel. But that will be kind of the first being that you see as you're being drawn into the gaze of Christ to be judged. And so Jesus is the one who does the judging, both in our judgment and at the final judgment at the end of time. But the angels are his assistants. The angels are created to have a particular order and role in the created order. And so they do his bidding, obviously, because he's the Lord of, of all. So, um, it's kind of a both and. The angels are involved, but it, it's Jesus who judges. Yeah, great question. Yeah, Jared. Yeah, the are the ones that supposed to come What are the angels that are ones who are supposed to come and lead us? So our guardian angels are in the choir of angels that are just called angels. 
So if you don't know this, uh, there's kind of like a, an area of theology called angelology that separates the angels into different orders. There's three kind of groupings of angels, the, the highest orders, the, the mid orders, and the lower orders, and they're made up of nine choirs. So the top three choirs, the seraphim, the cherubim, and the thrones, they attend to God at his throne and in the heavenly court. So they have different roles there. Um, the next three orders, the uh, dominions, the virtues, and the powers, have to do with the crea created order and the universe, how the universe works. So the angels are kind of involved in battling evil and also ensuring that like the forces of nature and of the universe stay in place. And then the final order of angels are the principalities, the archangels, and the angels. And they have direct uh, communication with humanity. So you see there's this kind of hierarchy, hierarchy even in heaven, that there's the angels that attend the Lord, the angels that attend the universe, and the angels that attend to us. So our guardian angels come from that lowest choir of angels. And it's not lowest meaning less important. It means lowest meaning closest to us. So principalities, uh, I don't know if you know this, but uh, principalities are considered guardian angels of cities. That every area has an, a guardian angel that's called a principality. That's why we call like a town a principality. That's where that word comes from. Um, so they have their own guardian angel. The archangels, uh, scripture says there's seven of them, they have particular uh, special roles that are given in God's interaction with humanity. So the angel Gabriel announcing uh, the virgin birth to Mary, the angel Raphael appearing to Tobit or Tobiah, the son of Tobit in the book of Tobit, um, and the angel Raphael, did I say Raphael? Yes, yeah, and the angel Michael, uh, you know, believed to be the guardian angel of Jesus and also attending to battling uh, Satan at the end of time in Revelation. And so, and then there are others that are unnamed. Um, in, the, in the east of the church, they have names. Um, Reuel, Uriel, I can't remember the other one's names. Uh, one of them is the one who has the fiery sword that's guarding the Garden of Eden, also known as a Jedi, probably, maybe. Uh, that'd be cool. So, but that one I believe is supposed to be Uriel, and I can't remember what the other three uh, are supposed to do. And then the angels, they're the guardian angels. So, yeah, there's a little angelology bit for the day. So, if you're curious about that, there's plenty of stuff on that online. Yes, Lord. Yeah, so there's a lot of um, passages about them that are kind of offered in passing in Scripture. I don't know them offhand, but in the Catechism, there's a whole section on angels. And then if you were to just Google, like, Catholic angelology, so just the word angel and then ology at the end, you would get like all the citations and church fathers and saints that kind of explain different visions or revelations that they had as to why the heavens are ordered in that way. Um, I don't believe, yeah, I don't believe in the catechism. It talks about the nine choirs specifically in their roles because it's not a matter of definitive church teaching. It's kind of a matter of like explorative theology. But a lot of revelations to particular saints have corroborated this kind of hierarchical nature to the angels and to the heavenly powers. So yeah, there's plenty you can read about that for yourself. About every kind of choir has a particular job, and it tells you everywhere in Scripture where they're referenced or quoted and why they believe that citation has something to do with what their role is and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, you're welcome. Yes. Yes, what's the purpose of the final judgment? Yeah, because at the particular judgment, our first judgment, we already know what happens. Well, the final judgment, that's the judgment for all those who have not yet been judged, who are still alive. But at our particular judgment, it's just between us and Jesus. Like we just, we know kind of the effects of our actions and how they've affected our soul, the decisions we've made, and what that means about our life spent in eternity with or without God. 
At our final judgment, everyone is brought before God to be judged. No one is like reverse judged. So if you're like already been judged to go to heaven, you're still like in heaven. You've already been judged to go to hell. You're still in hell. You know, that nothing changes. But what's new is that the effects of both sin and grace are made known to everyone. So every decision, every action you and I have made, both good and bad, will be revealed to everyone. And we'll see the ramifications of that in the body of Christ, both for good and for bad. And that is necessary to do to repair and restore, or rather transform, heaven and earth to a new heaven and new earth so that it can be made whole. We have to understand the ramifications of sin and the ramifications of grace to be able to then live in a renewed heaven or a new heaven and a new earth. So that's the purpose. Particular judgment is just, where am I going? The final judgment is, how do we now get to where we're all destined to be, this new heaven and new earth with God? We can't just skip over everything that happened. We have to be able to see the ramifications of our actions and how they played out so that we can best understand how the mercy of God's been at work in trying to save every single one of us. Does that make sense? Yeah, great. Other questions, thoughts, Greg? How can, uh, how can that be? Uh, that everything we do is exposed to everybody to see, and there's millions and millions of people at that time, mm -hmm. I mean, it's gonna take forever. Yes, if we're operating in the same level of time, yes, it will take forever. Um, if it, let's say, if God, who is all powerful and has the power to do this, animates our understanding in a moment, for us all to know the fullness of that and immediately be able to comprehend and understand it, then it will take no time at all. So it just depends on the nature of how God wants us to go through that. And our experience of time will not be exactly the same as it is here. So no one's going to be like coming in line and contemplating over what we did. <laughs> no, you know, or I'm not going to be like last in line because it's alphabetical always and be like, all right, Z's are last. I'll just like sit down for an eternity, you know? So no, I think, you know, our experience of it will be, it will last as long as it needs to last for us to get the effect that is needed and for us to then live in the fullness of the glory God has in store for us. No longer, no shorter. Okay. I don't feel like I'm going to be so embarrassed anymore. Yeah. And God knows you and God knows how much patience we each have. So maybe it will last a different amount of time for each of us. So those who are very patient, they'll be like, no problem. And people like Greg will be like, this has got to be like over in a second, dude. And he'll just have mercy on you. And you'll, you know, time will move differently for you, maybe. So, yes, Richard. Um, yes. But, um, yes. You say new heaven and new earth. Yes. Explain the new earth part, because that's really important for me for my situation. Yes. So the new heaven and new earth are not separated. At the beginning of time, there was this, you know, if you read, I think it's in Genesis chapter 2, where it says that God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. There was this kind of communal dwelling. Sin severed that. Kind of immediately, as if there was like this realm, this realm, and a doorway. You know, heaven, earth, and a doorway, and there was free accessibility both ways, kind of immediately shut the door. And now there's permanent separation, and this part, earth, needs to be redeemed. It cannot exist simultaneously or, or like in connection with heaven because nothing unclean can enter heaven. Heaven is pure. And if there's any amount of sin on earth, there's, there can be no kind of direct line or relationship between the two of them. That's why earth, this whole creation needs to be recreated and redeemed. And that's been done spiritually in what Jesus did for us. 
but it then needs to be recreated at the end of time. So the idea that there's a new heaven and new earth is not going to be like our conception of heaven and earth now. It's going to be a communal experience where heaven literally dwells on earth. And that there is a, you can read this in Revelation chapter 21, and I think a little in 22, the very last two chapters of the Bible, that just show John's vision of what this is going to look like. A new temple, a new ability to be connected with God, a new kind of union between all people. All nations are there, people from every tribe, you know, everything like that. So it's not like we're just entering into a new phase of time, and there'll be new covenants and a new Bible and a new timeline. No, it's a restoration to what originally was supposed to be, but now will be even better because we've been saved from sin and we understand what it is that we've gained and what we could have lost. All with our resurrected body. Yes, all with our resurrected body. Yeah, that's another point at the final judgment. Um, our, our bodies will raise, be resurrected and glorified and reunited with our souls. So we'll all be ripped and, you know, so like, that's why I'm like not that concerned, you know, like, you know, you go to the gym a lot, but like the older you get, you can't maintain that. And in heaven, like, I'm, I'm going to be so cut in heaven. So like, who cares, you know, like eat your donuts, you know what I mean? So don't worry about it. Yes. In the last he went away from there. There is Galilee. Yeah, in the region of Galilee, he's in Capernaum. Yeah. So his kind of adult ministry hometown. So he went away from there. And then he's going to Nazareth, which we see next, where he's rejected. Yeah. Other questions? Things that stood out to you? So that life of the world to come, amen, is what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. In the creed. Is that in the creed? Life of the world to come. Yeah. No. Life everlasting. What's in the life of the world to come? What's that from? I look forward to the life of the world to come. Yeah, it's part of the Mass. It's not part of the Creed. Right? Somebody Google it. I don't think it's part of the Creed. Because the Creed is... It's one of the two creeds. Oh, yes. Okay. That's probably... Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. I digress. Thank you. <laughs> I know now we're all going through it, you know. It's like anyone is like, well, who is the 20th president? It's like Washington Adams or something. So I only memorize them in order in fifth grade. I can't like pick out, unless it's Lincoln. Yes? Do you mind re-explaining, because I know you talked about it a bit earlier, but mm -hmm. I just forgot it. Uh, re-explaining verse 52 of who exactly is every scribe? Is that referring to us or... Um, it could be. I mean, I don't, I don't know if that's definitive or not, but, you know, so scribe is someone who's a scholar of the law. And so basically Jesus is saying here, like, if you understand this, then any scholar of the law, anyone who knows more than you, who's educated in this, they should be able to understand that what I am doing here, this kingdom of heaven that I'm proclaiming is not just something new. It's existed all in the old as well and all of these old covenants. And it's all coming to fruition and fulfillment in what I am offering you, what I am teaching you. So he's basically saying, like, if you can understand this, you kind of laymen, you disciples, because none of them are particularly well-educated, he's saying then every scribe should be able to understand what it is that I'm doing here. And it's kind of foreshadowing this fact that they're not going to. Even though they have a capability of doing it, they're not going to, which leads immediately into these rejections, John the Baptist dying, etc. So it's kind of also functioning as a hinge between this teaching and what's to come, kind of in a negative foreshadowing kind of way. Yeah, yeah. One final question, reflection, thought? Something stood out to you? Oh, yes. Uh, just a 
couple of weeks ago, going back to the about the final judgment, a couple yes. of weeks ago, there, there was a talk about uh, confession and when you confess sins and how that they they're just forgotten, but you mentioned that, that they will be brought up again, like whatever you confess to. I was just wondering if you could. Yes. No. I, so, yeah, sins are not forgotten. They are forget. That's a misnomer because in order for a sin to be forgotten, that would imply that all the ramifications of our sins have been removed. So if I go to confession and say I murdered someone, God's not going to forget it because the family of the person I murdered, obviously, is not going to forget it either just because I magically went to confession. So our sin is not forgotten. It's That phrasing is sometimes used in the sense that God does not hold it against us. So he kind of forgets the punishment accorded to that sin that robs us of our salvation. However, there are consequences, what are called temporal punishments according to our sin, that we need to atone for and make up for. That's why we say penance. That's why at every confession you're given a penance. So it's part of your effort to make amends and to show that you are trying not to sin. You commit to try and commit to not sin when you pray the act of contrition, when you go to confession. But that's one of the, uh, the, the big reasons why um, it makes sense that Jesus revealed in different areas and the, New, and the New Testament revealed in different areas this reality of purgatory. That like the wages of sin is death. Everybody sins, which means everyone is destined for death, everyone destined for hell, because nothing unclean can enter heaven. That's in Revelation 21, 17. So how do we get from all sinning, nobody can get to heaven, because nothing sinful can be there. How do any of us get to heaven? And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, there's this passage where Paul is talking about the people who do good works and what they build their foundation on. And he says, even if those build their foundations on, I'm paraphrasing here, not on good works or not on a right foundation, they can be saved, but only as through fire. And that's one of the verses, one of many others in, in Scripture that lead to this idea that there is a purification needed for the things that we've done wrong in order for us to experience salvation. It doesn't say in that passage that they lose their salvation, that they can't be saved, but it says that there needs to be some kind of purification. So that's why God does not forget, because the ramifications of our sin are still a reality playing out in the world. And that's why we need to make amends for that and be aware of that at the final judgment. We need to make amends for that here. That's the church's teaching on indulgences. We don't have time to get into that, but maybe next time. Uh, But you can read that in the Catechism, very fascinating stuff. Um, which the church still practices, never sells. We never sell indulgences. That's a misnomer. Um, anyway, I'm getting, we're going to go over time. So we can talk about this after if you want. But anyways, um, we need to make up for the consequences of our sin in some way. So we'll either do that here or definitely in purgatory. But we can begin that process here, which is what the church's teachings on things like indulgences entails. So it's not you kind of buying your way out of purgatory. It's about you are committing to do certain spiritual acts, goods, and good works to make up for the consequences and the pain that your sin has caused the world. So, yeah. Doesn't forget. But forgives. Always. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of this study, for the gift of this passage, and all the ways it challenges us to ask ourselves, are we seeking you? Have we discovered the good news? Have we responded in joy? Is it leading us to some kind of concrete action? Because eventually, Lord, we'll get to the point of no return. There won't be a second chance. There won't be an ability to go back and do things differently. And so why not reprioritize and live in total sacrifice, total self-gift, total response to relationship with you today? What is holding us back, Lord? We cannot rest on the laurels of spiritual acts of having always been Catholic, of being nice people. 
but to really ask and contemplate, have I given my entire life to you, Lord? And what would that look like? What am I still holding on to? And so we pray, Lord, that this passage would resonate with us. It would sit with us. We would reflect upon it throughout this week. And when we hear it proclaimed again this Sunday, we continue to uh, be able to make known in our own lives uh, what this means for us, how it challenges us. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of this time. We pray all these things in your most precious name. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.